Well, after all the food yesterday, we needed a good laugh, right? <laughs> Turn to Matthew chapter 2. And as you do, Matthew chapter 2, uh, it was fun talking to some of the young people out here saying, what'd you get for Christmas? And I heard all from Legos to Lululemon. I heard it all. So Merry Christmas to you young people and to all of us young at heart. Uh, what an exciting time. Christmas is certainly marked with gifts. <clears throat> And there's another time of life where gifts are given, that's when a baby is born. And we have here in the text gifts that are being given, brought to baby Jesus, the wise men. So if you would, we're in Matthew chapter 2. This is the last sermon in our Christmas series, Matthew 2 verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea in the time of King Herod, and when you hear that name, we immediately go, boo. And we'll get back to him in a minute. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is this one who was born king of the Jews? For we saw a star, notice that pronoun there, his star, when it rose, and we've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was alarmed, and all Jerusalem with him. And after assembling all the chief priests and experts in the law, he asked them the same question the Magi asked, where is this Christ to be born? They said, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it's written in the way of the prophet, and they quote Micah 5, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are in no way least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod privately summoned the wise men and determined from them when the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and, and look very carefully for the child. And when you find him, inform me so that I can go and do what you're doing. And that is, I want to as well. After listening to the king, they left. And once again, the star they saw when it rose led them until it stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they shouted joyfully. As they came into the house, notice it's not the stable, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they bowed down and they did exactly what they intended to do, and that is they worshiped him. They opened their treasure boxes and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And after being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they went back another route to their own country. Father, as we come to the text this morning, we thank you again for this incredible time of the year in which we can reflect on the most amazing gift humanity has ever or will ever receive, and that was your son. And Lord, on Christmas Eve, we observed the visit of the shepherds, and this morning we come and look at the visit of the Magi. Guide us as we go through the text. Thank you for your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have a sermon outline and following along, we're looking first at looking at the text and looking at, there's really three characters, isn't there, in the narrative. There's Jesus, that's the no-brainer, that's what this is all revolving around. You also have Herod. You go, who is Herod the Great? Well, he reigns from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. And often when we hear Herod's name, we do go boo, hiss, and yet the the first two phases of his reign, he, he was well-loved. He consolidated the empire. Oh, there were some people who hated him. For the most part, though, he consolidates the 
land of Israel today, which even extended over into modern Jordan, enormous swatch of property, territory, how he became king, that's a whole other story that could take all day to discuss. But through political maneuvering, etc., he's very shrewd. He becomes king. His first phase was consolidating. The second stage of his reign was noted for building and, and defying nature. He builds a port, a harbor, where there is no harbor, Caesarea. He builds the temple, or at least he remodels it and expands it to a point it becomes the largest religious facility in all of the ancient world. Larger than anything Egypt ever had. Larger than anything in Mesopotamia. Massive endeavors. And with that comes Pax Romana, comes peace to the land. And Rome is very pleased. He's the client king over this region that Rome has appointed. Uh, ultimately, he reports to Rome, and he will on a couple occasions. But uh, it's his third phase, in the latter years, which we are entering, where he becomes very paranoid. Becomes almost mentally ill, some have argued, some scholars. He marries one of his wives is Moramne, and she is a Hashmonean. If you don't know who that family is, that's okay, but it's a Jewish priestly royal dynasty in the, between the Old and the New Testament. He will marry her, he wipes out her entire family in the latter phase of his reign, and he will also kill her. He will kill his own sons for threat that they might take his throne. And on his deathbed, he demanded that 500 prominent Jews be taken to a hippodrome and killed so at least the country would mourn during his death. Hmm. Thankfully, his family members did not fulfill his dying wishes. But you get an idea of this man and the thought that he's going to allow some king to rise up in Bethlehem or in the vicinity. Mm -mm. It's not in the history books, but it wouldn't put it past him to kill a couple dozen babies in that region during this time frame. Any threat. And this is the backdrop. And then you have these magi who come, wise men. We sing the Christmas carol, we three kings of Orient are, and yet it has a whole lot of problems. Let me just walk through these with you. I don't mean to burst your love of that song. It's a delightful tune. But first of all, the text doesn't tell us they're kings. In fact, if anything, they're from a priestly caste system of the Medes and the Persians. Their magi were noted for interpreting dreams. They were astrologers. They were sages, soothsayers. The text does not present them in a negative light, but in other Jewish writings, these type of individuals were not looked favorably upon. Nonetheless, they are wise men that have come, and the, and the text tells us, the song says the Orient, they come from Orient, are. The problem is, when we think Orient, we think China. But in the first century world, the Orient is the East. This is Babylon, this is Persia, or perhaps Arabia, which is most likely. In other words, they are Gentiles. It's very significant to our story. The number of Magi, almost every nativity set has three, right? The text never tells us it's three. There's three gifts. It's not later the early church mentions that there's three. The Syrian church still holds that there were 12. The, the text doesn't tell us. And these will be great trivia questions next Christmas when you get together. How many Magi were there? Another thing that's interesting 
is that the, the story tells us that when they arrive, verse 11, it says they came to the house, not the stable. This is why if you have your nativities that the Magi need to be way over here. They're coming. They're not there yet. Augustine, the early church father, said they arrived 13 days later. If they're from Arabia or Babylon or Persia, they have to be from one of those areas, you're talking at least a thousand miles. To travel by camel in the first century would take you 20 miles a day. We're talking months for this journey when they arrive. It, it didn't happen overnight. They didn't hop on the next American United or Delta flight to get to, to Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? It's the logical place to go. If you're looking for a king of the Jews, you'd go to the political hub, you'd go to the religious center of the first century world, and that, that is Jerusalem. And so this is why, in fact, Herod, where's his royal palace? Well, he has one in Caesarea and some other locations, but the primary palace is there in Jerusalem. And notice what the text says. These magi says, where is the king of the Jews? It's a phrase used in the New Testament always to refer, well, what is used by the Gentiles, Gentiles always to refer to Jesus. The Jews will refer to him as king of Israel. It's interesting, Herod's title is king of the Jews. That's what he'll be known as. And we have one other object in the story, and that is the star, don't we? It says, we saw his star when it rose. A star is unique. <laughs> and scholars try to explain, well, it's a comet or it's some supernova, I don't know. What's clear is it doesn't function like a normal star. It appears, you know, it disappears when they get to Jerusalem, then it reappears and it leads them. So there is certainly something supernatural. And the text says, again, it's his star. This is important because in a Greco-Roman world, it was thought that a star was given to someone very prominent. This even goes back into the Old Testament. Numbers 22, do you remember Numbers? Uh, Balaam, the foreign prophet, was given money by King Balak of Moab to curse Israel. Remember that whole scene in, in Numbers 22 through 24? In so doing, God moves through Balaam and doesn't curse Israel. He actually blesses them and he curses Moab. And he makes this statement in Numbers 24. He says, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be disposed. By the way, Herod the Great is an Idumean. His family is from the land of Edom. Interesting, isn't it? He's not a full Jew. That was part of his problem in trying to be king. No wonder he gave so much money and resources to building the temple. He was trying to ingratiate himself with the Jewish population. And it says, his enemy shall be disposed. Israel is doing valiantly. That text is interpreted by Jewish writings in the time between the old and the new as messianic, that that star that would rise will be the Messiah. In the Jewish second revolt under Rome in the 130s, they meant coins, and above the temple is a star to indicate messianic deliverance. It's called the Bar Kokhba revolt. And, and here you have in this text a star in a Greco-Roman world, very significant because it was associated with prominent people who were born in 
a Jewish world, there's no doubt the link is to numbers. Ah, this is the star that was promised. It's even seen in the Dead Sea Scrolls. I wrote, not only is it not Herod's star that they've not, they didn't come to see Herod's star. Okay, this, first of all, has got to create a problem for King Herod. But no one in Herod's court seemed to have noticed the star. And to add insult to injury, the Magi say, and we've come to worship him. <laughs> this isn't going well for Herod. Uh, he's startled, and the text tells us in verse 3 that he is very concerned it's the same term used of the disciples when they encountered Jesus walking on the water in Matthew 14. They're beside themselves. What is going on? In fact, the text tells us, look at verse 3, all of Jerusalem with them. The confusion over the king of the Jews is seen throughout the gospel narratives, isn't it? Time and time again, who is this Jesus? Well, he's the son of Joseph, isn't he? No. Oh, he's of Beelzebub. No. And, and the anxiety that's expressed here, it's even almost, it could be translated hostility among the Jewish population in hearing this news is the same attitude that we see in the latter part of the gospel. Herod fears his throne to be in jeopardy or at least his own plans for royal succession. And trust me, he's thought long about it. He's changed his will numerous times. Why? Because he keeps killing his own heirs. But that's a whole other story, right? And, and so there is grave concern. And when assembling all the chief priests and the experts in the law, I mean, he calls the hoi polloi. This is the frozen chosen. This is probably the Sanhedrin and others. And he says, listen, I need to know from you Jewish leaders, you religious leaders, what are they talking about? What is this magi insisting on? Isn't it ironic that the Jewish leaders have missed it? <laughs> the Magi caught it via a star. But there are, and in fact, when it's revealed, there are no religious leaders that accompany the Magi to Bethlehem. Unlike the Magi who kept their eye on the star, the religious leaders failed to keep their eyes on the star of numbers, the promised one. And again, I ask, why didn't the religious rulers go with the Magi? Wouldn't it have been worth the risk to go six miles south of Jerusalem in case perhaps these crazy stargazers are correct? I mean, wouldn't it be worth the risk? Mm -mm. Perhaps they were so smug in their theological towers and academic skills that they weren't going to be bothered with a group of Magi. Note what Herod refers to this child as. He said he asked them, verse 4, where the Christ was to be born, the Meshua. This is significant. <laughs> and you see this dark contrast or stark contrast between these Gentiles, pagan stargazers who have figured this out, and religious rulers who seem to have been taken by surprise. I don't know. You know, when I reflect on these astrologers from the East, you have to marvel, don't you? <laughs> they were not faithfully serving in the temple in Jerusalem, such as Zacharias. They were not committed to the scriptures of the chief priests and the scribes. They were not even noted for their humility and purity like little Mary. And yet God's grace and mercy 
offered these wise men the opportunity to worship his son. <laughs> and that's what God has done for us. He's extended salvation to us. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, he's revealed himself to you and to me. Who are we? <laughs> that God should lavish his grace on us. What did we do to deserve salvation? What did these magi do to be afforded this opportunity? It's by God's grace. Well, verse 6, they quote the religious rulers from Micah 5.2. And we talked about this on Christmas Eve. If you were here, the book of Micah, one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament, written 700 and some years before Christ in the 8th century B.C. It condemns Israel for their, well, Jewish leaders for their sin, but it promises a better day. And in Micah 5, I'm going to read the text again, which a portion of it is here in Matthew 2. But you, O Bethlehem, from you shall come forth from me one who is to rule in Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock with the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord. The whole concept of shepherding God's people goes back even to Ezekiel 34, where it states, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep. What did the Lord say in John 10? I am the good shepherd. I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out the flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all places. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them into their own land. Then Ezekiel goes on to state in verse 15, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the stray. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak, the fat and the strong, and I will destroy. I will feed them into justice or lead them into justice. That's the promise that's been given. And so these truths of Ezekiel and of Micah, the religious rulers understand, oh yes, we're looking for a, a Messiah that would come who will shepherd us, our people, and Bethlehem is the town. This is where he's to originate. And you can just hear Herod plotting. Okay, now I have the where, but where is the, when is the when, right? When did the star appear? And that's what he asked in verse seven. Let's determine when the star has appeared. It, you could even translate, there's a sinister feeling in the midst of this, right? I mean, he's looking to destroy. And again, he says to the religious rulers, or to the magi, I want to worship him. It's repeated three times in the text. Do you know this contrast between the two kings? This Herod and this one who has been born in Bethlehem. You got a false king, you got a true king. I mean, you have one who's a descendant of Esau, that is an Idumean. You have one who's a descendant of Jacob. You have one who seeks to be served versus one who seeks to serve. Herod who promises to come and worship. Jesus is the promised one who has come to be worshiped. <laughs> what a contrast. You can't help but think, the, the Magi know, this guy doesn't stack up to what he claims to be. And of course, the dream only confirms this for them. And so we come back to the Magi and the star, and again, it reappears. You kind of have to wonder if the star didn't wait, because 
Herod might have followed it as well. Who knows? But in verse 10, when they saw the star, literally it's rendered, they rejoiced exceedingly with joy. The birth and ascension of kings were marked with joy. And it was a faithful response to those who trusted God. Isaiah 65, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever. I create Jerusalem, this is God speaking, to be a joy and her people to be gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad. No more shall we be heard in the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. These dignified foreign magi, these, these gurus who've come, shout with joy. Contrast to Jerusalem earlier in the text that are distressed, <laughs> concerned, worried of, oh dear, what is going to happen? Well, verse 11, again, they come to the house and it, this is the climax. This is what they've come to do. They worship they don't just fall on their knees. I mean, look what it says. They bowed down and they worshiped him. Wow. What a statement. And worship throughout Matthew's gospel in particular is key. It's the response from where there is genuine repentance and faith. One commentator writes, for Matthew, an adequate response to Jesus will finally and always involve worship. Think about Matthew 28, verse 17. After encountering the resurrected Lord, what did the disciples do? They worshiped, the text tells us. I love Matthew's account here as well in verse 11. The focus, it says, and they saw the child, that's the focus, with Mary, his mother. There's no mention of Joseph. Joseph is out of the picture. This is on Jesus. He's the center of our attention. And then the gifts start rolling out, right? This is the Christmas gifts of the year. Not many here would probably, kids would want frankincense and myrrh. But let me talk about the three gifts and why they're so significant. First, we see gold. and That, that goes without ex an explanation. Uh, gold was valuable then, it is now. Maybe not what is it, 2,000 an ounce? I don't know what it costs now. Uh, the frankincense is the second thing. This is imported from Arabia, which that's their hometown area. It's also from India and Somalia. It's a gum resin from various particular trees. It's pale yellow or greenish yellow in color. Why is it significant? Well, certainly it's used for burial purposes. It's used for medicinal purposes, making things smell nice. But in the Old Testament, it was an ingredient for the sacred incense. We see in Exodus 30, it was offered with the bread at the presence and it was intertwined with the grain offerings. It was very significant in the worship of Israel. Myrrh, very similar as well. It is from South Arabia or even Ethiopia. It was used not only as perfume, cosmetics, medical purposes, but also it's used for the anointing of oil seen in Exodus 30. Gold is invaluable, we know that, but frankincense and myrrh were right on the same playing field. They were extremely valuable and rare in the first century. They were of limited supply 
the nomadic tribes made sure of that. They had a corner on the market. Resulting from the restrictions of productions, the difficulties of transportation, and the, in, this incense became extremely costly. One scholar argues that it took two weeks of wages just to purchase one pound of frankincense. Extremely valuable. But why these three? <laughs> well, there are many views. Martin Luther said it's, it represents mercy, prayer, and purity. We don't know. But there is something more significant, though, I would argue, underlying the gifts. I think they're rare commodities that they have given to express their commitment to worship and glorify this one, honor him. But in Isaiah 60, there's a powerful text. The writer of Isaiah states, Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For darkness shall cover the earth, thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise and his glory will appear. Nations shall come to your light. The multitude, listen to this, of camels shall cover the young camels of Midian and Sheba. This is Arabia. And they shall come and they shall bring, this is Isaiah 60, verse 6, gold and frankincense and shall proclaim the praise of the Lord. Do, 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 do. This is significant. This wasn't written at the time of the first century. This is from Isaiah the prophet. And what is he saying? He's stating that Gentile worshipers will come and they will bring gifts and honor this Messiah. It's showing that there's continuity and fulfillment of a plan of salvation for all people as Messiah comes to Israel. And this is why these magi are here as they honor the Lord and showing no, this, this is a one who's, who's a king. And as Matthew writes his gospel to a group of Jews, he's trying to argue, this Jesus is your Meshua. This is your king. And here we see that as these gifts are given. Warren Wiersbe writes, what a paradox that a babe in a manger should be called mighty. Yet even as a baby, Jesus Christ revealed power his birth affected the heavens as that star appeared. The star affected the Magi. They left their homes and made that long journey to Jerusalem. Their announcement shook King Herod and his court. Jesus' birth brought angels from heaven and simple shepherds from their flocks on the hillside. Midnight became midday as the glory of the Lord appeared to men. <laughs> we look at this account that happened so long ago and we asked the question, okay, what, do, what does that have for us? And there are three things in your notes as we walk away from this text. The first of all, the Magi remind us that Jesus alone is worthy of our worship. If you do not know who this Jesus is, then I would argue you can't worship him. You have to know who he is. Herod wasn't coming to the house and bowing down. Even the religious rulers weren't coming and bowing down. In fact, <laughs> later they're going to want to kill him, let alone worship him. And 
the force of this understanding that we have to know who Jesus is or who God is in order to worship, I see in Psalm 143, I remember the days of long ago. I meditate on your works and consider what your hands have done. I spread out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Worship begins with an understanding of who God is and what he has done and what he is doing. It's exclusive. Second Kings, do not forget the covenant I made with you. Do not worship other gods. The wise men didn't come to worship Herod, nor did they worship the star. They worshiped the one that had been born, the promised one. Not only is our worship exclusive with Christ, it is the sole source of life. Herod the Great sought meaning in life through his power, his pocketbook. The religious leaders sought meaning and knowledge and piety, and yet it is the baby in Bethlehem that promises life and life more abundantly. If a person has been humbled by coming to Christ for salvation, he should acknowledge or we should acknowledge that God is God. He alone is worthy of our worship. I love what William Temple described worship as, to worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, and to open the heart to the love of God, to devote our will to the purpose of God. And so, when I look at these magi, it's a reminder that Jesus alone is worthy of worship. Secondly, the Magi remind us that glorifying the Lord must take precedence over all areas of our life. We set ourselves above God when we seek to satisfy our own desires, our own longings. Worshiping God should be all-consuming. One scholar writes, worship is not a sentimental feeling of nostalgia. Rather, it is an engagement of one's total being with the triune God. I love the lyrics of the old hymn in a Christmas carol in the break midwinter. It says, what can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what can I give him? I'll give him my heart. <laughs> Have you given your heart to Jesus this morning? In other words, have you, have you come to a place in your life where you recognize, I can't do this on my own. None of this makes sense. Like those citizens of Jerusalem, you're in turmoil, you're wondering, I don't, I don't know what's going on here. Well, the Savior's come. He died on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin. And the good news is, he's coming again. Why? Because he rose from the dead. And the call for all is to repent and believe. I love the, the video we showed earlier, but the sad part is there are many who don't know what this Jesus is about. Oh, it's a cute little child and some little nativity, but it's far more than that. This is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And worshiping him is all-consuming. It also calls for sacrifice, doesn't it? Think about the Magi. They traveled hundreds of miles, if not thousands. Far worse, to follow a star, they'd have to travel at night. And in the first century world, you didn't travel at night. That was extremely dangerous. And remember, they've, they've got a lot of, <laughs> of possessions on them. You don't do that. It's dangerous. 
And then to make matters worse, when they arrive, they ask to see the king standing before the king. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine a group of visitors coming to the business, to your business and saying, we want to see the CEO, or they come to the CEO stating they have gifts for the next CEO and wonder which cubicle he was working in. <laughs> I pity the employee, right? You're toast. You get the idea. In fact, according to Josephus, the first century historian, Jewish historian, he says, on one occasion, a group of Pharisees, now that's a religious group in the first century. They were very conservative. They prophesied to Herod's sister-in-law that Herod's throne would be taken from him and his descendants. Herod found out he killed all of those Pharisees and his sister-in-law. I, those magi, the risk they are taking to go to Herod and say, hey, we're here to look for the king of the Jews. It's enormous. And they risk their dignity as well. And I would argue they made great financial sacrifice. They had to cover this journey that lasted months. There's no employment during this time frame. And of course, the treasures that they give. But imagine if they hadn't done it. 2 Corinthians 4 says, For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. Serving the Lord is not easy. Ministry is hard. But all oh, the joys that come through it, because we, Paul goes on, because we look not at what can be seen, but what cannot be seen. And so following Jesus, yeah, it's difficult. And it's getting more difficult. But Paul goes on to say, for what can be seen is temporary, what, but what cannot be seen is eternal. The Magi made huge sacrifice, but all oh, the joy, the opportunity. And that leads us to the third point there. The Magi remind us of the great privilege of worshiping our Lord. We have the opportunity to share in this joy, to serve as ambassadors for Christ, and I would argue to bask in his presence. We're told, as we looked at on Christmas Eve, the shepherds had the opportunity of sharing the good news with others. There's no recording of what happened when the Magi went back to their home country, but I suspect, reading in the white of the text is that can you hear him we were right it was the star of the king of the jews <laughs> and we found him and it was incredible wish you could have been there you should have gone with us right aw tozer state god wants us to worship him he doesn't need us for he couldn't he could be a self-sufficient god and he could have been but he needed he, doesn't, he didn't need anything, Tozer goes on, or anybody. But he allows us to worship him. He allowed those magi to come, those hundreds if not thousands of miles, to bear gifts to his son. And he allows us, <laughs> on this day after Christmas, to continue to sing praises to him and to bring our gifts as a token of gratitude for this is our King. This is our Lord, 
our Savior, our Messiah. Father, we come to you and we thank you. <laughs> what a glorious story, account of the birth of your son and the visitors. We've looked at the shepherds and now these magi who've come and how you've fulfilled the promises of old that were given from Bethlehem, one who would shepherd the people. And Isaiah 60, that talks about how the, the foreigners would come and bring gifts like they did with Solomon. Lord, thank you. Thank you that we have the opportunity through your son to call you Abba, to call you Father. What a gift. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name.